to understand Christmas properly, we need to understand Christmas is a declaration of war. It's a war we desperately need, but a war we're completely unable to fight. Uh, We've only got two services left uh, this year. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're picking two readings uh, from the traditional set of readings uh, that are read at the the service called Nine Lessons and Carols. Uh, It began in in, uh, King's College, Canterbury, in December 1918. So just after the end of the First World War, just a month or so after the First World War, uh, the, the, uh, the minister of that particular church wanted to put together a service to, to help people off the back of the chaos of World War I understand the Bible story. And so he, he formed this service, nine readings and a set of carols as well, that tell the Christmas story. And it's, you might know it's been repeated every year since. It's broadcast on television on Christmas Eve. It will, doubt, again, no doubt be this year uh, as well. And the, the story that, that, uh, that, that the Christmas uh, readings tell begins not with the shepherds, not with the wise men, not even with the angels announcing uh, to Joseph uh, or to Mary that Christ is to be born, but it begins right back in Genesis 3, back at the beginning of the story of the world. And it's a story that begins with an announcement of both war and ultimately of peace. Now, Christmas, for many of us, symbolises peace. Perhaps one of the most famous Christmas stories is that story from World War I, where for just one day the guns stopped Christmas 1914, uh, when the German uh, and the, the, the Allied forces came out of the trenches, played football, sang carols together. It was a moment of peace in the midst of war. Uh, and so Christmas for many is about peace. And that's right, and the angels announce peace on earth, goodwill to all men. But we won't understand that peace until we first understand the conflict that the peace is meant to end. And that's why these readings begin with a declaration of war, as well as then a promise of peace. So let's dive in and look. Uh, First of all, the battleground at Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. As I said before, we we read the passage that the scene is is the garden in Eden. Uh, God has made this perfect world, this paradise world, and put man and woman in it to enjoy it. Uh, He's a good God, a giving God. Everything they need, they had. But it was for their good that they also realised they weren't the supreme rulers of the world. It was for their good that they realised that God was greater than them, above them, that he was the king and they were underneath him. And so he placed famously in this garden in Eden, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and told them that that is off limits. At least for now, that is off limits. He wasn't being stingy. He wasn't being tight. He'd given them all the rest of the world to enjoy. But as a symbol of his authority, this one tree stood alone and off limits. But of course, that wasn't enough. That giving them the world wasn't enough. Adam and Eve wanted more, craved for more. And as the enemy slithered into the garden, the serpent, he was able to prey on this desire for more, this desire to be godlike, and tempt them into rebellion. If you just look up at verses 4 and 5, above where we read, 
Uh, the serpent gets into Eve's ear and suggests to her that God isn't really good, that God actually is holding something back. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the crucial thing. You won't die. There's no penalty. There's no problem with disobeying God. Sin is just a small thing. Rebellion against God doesn't matter. You can't believe all that stuff about judgment, Adam and Eve. Uh, Who in this world, says the serpent, who nowadays could possibly believe that a loving God would punish people? That there'd be anger, that there'd be wrath, that'd be hell. You can't believe in that nowadays, says the serpent on page one of the Bible. And not only is there going to be any punishment, not only are there no consequences for disobeying God, in fact, disobeying God is the path to blessing. You'll be like God. Life will get better if you disobey him. If you take what he's withheld, then, and in fact only then, will you experience a life of blessing, says the serpent. It's always been the same. It's always been the same. Uh, movies, cartoons, but particular, um, uh, present Satan as if he's this kind of horned, scary, red glowing figure. But actually he's a charmer. He, what he does is promise and give. But he gives in order to destroy. So Adam and Eve take the fruit and paradise is shattered. This perfect world uh, is broken. Uh, as a child, uh, I had a, a, on my sort of bedside table, as a, a really young child, I had a, a little snow globe. You know, snow globes, children, you sort of shake them up. And, and, and it, it, I was fascinated by this, this globe because in it was this, this perfect little world. It was a, a snowscape. There was a little house with glowing lights, little trees with snow had settled on. And you had a beautiful kind of blue skies background. You shook it up, the snow fell. And it was, it, it was just like a little paradise world. I would, I'd, I'd sit and look at it for, for, for ages. Not an exciting childhood. Uh, but if you take a snow globe and drop it and it cracks then the world shatters and that is what happened to this paradise it's not that it was completely destroyed it's not that the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God everything ceased to exist they dropped down dead but rather it was shattered and the life started to ooze out of it Uh, it was paradise but paradise lost, scarred, maimed and so God enters the scene, and this is our, as our, our reading began. God enters the world, and he enters, to put it bluntly, in, in judgment. Uh, he enters and shows that everything the serpent lied about is, well, just that, lies. He enters to punish. And, and each aspect of our world becomes cracked as a result of our rebellion against God, of our, our desire to live in another way than the pattern he laid out. We're not going to have time this morning to look at all the details but, but each area of your life, every world you live in, is affected by this early rebellion. Think of family. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. God addresses the area of, of family, children and of marriage. And they're no longer going to be simple, smooth and harmonious. Uh, No longer uh, will everything be without fault. Life is going to be difficult and painful. Marriages, husbands and wives struggle. 
parents and children fall out. Uh, some desperately want to marry and never do. Others do marry and it turns out to be far more painful than they imagined. This whole area of family life is now inflicted with pain. Uh, so too is creation itself, the world, the environment. Verse 17, because, Adam, you've listened to the voice of your wife, eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Verse 18, thorns and thistles shall come forth. Before then, you plant potatoes, they grow nice and easily. You plant carrots, up they, they pop. No thorns, no thistles. Gardening was a dream. But now, volcanoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, global warming, ice caps melting, whatever it may be, the earth is cracked and shattered, cursed, because of our sin. Think of your work life, verse 17. Now, for Adam, in pain you shall eat of it, eat of the, uh, the ground, all the days of your life. Or verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It is now tough, your working life. This is why computer programs have glitches. Engines fail. Lesson plans go astray. Whatever your area of life, things go wrong beyond your control. And ultimately, verse 19, well, death comes to all of us. Uh, you will return to the ground, for you are dust, and dust you will return. The last dozen or so years I've been in ministry. On the whole, I've been in churches, I've been quite young. So we've had far more marriages than funerals. But you still have funerals. Uh, you stand at the graveside, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. It is the fate that awaits each and every one of us. One of day, we will be lowered into the ground as our relatives stand around uh, in tears. And someone will say, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. There is no escaping it. So in summary, verse 23, 24, what has happened? Paradise has been lost. God sends Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden, drove them out and prevented their return. Uh, we live, as the expression goes, east of Eden now, no longer in paradise. And what's crucial that we see from these uh, verses is that, what is it, the curses are deserved. We're not children who've accidentally wandered into a bad neighbourhood and need someone to come and rescue us from a situation that is not our fault, from dangers that are nothing to do with us. We're not innocent victims of the evil tyrant who's taken over our country. Rather, we are the guilty ones. We are the ones who cause the trouble. It's noticeable over the last few weeks with all the campaigns and political uh, manoeuvrings uh, that, 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 that everyone's keen to find someone to blame for the woes of society. It's social media's fault. Uh, it's TV's fault. It's the politician's fault. It's the education system's fault. Everyone wants to blame something out there for the problems in here. But God has it the other way around. The problems are in here. And that's what leads to the trouble out there. And what that means, to, to, to flip the coin over if you like is that Christmas will have no wonder, the Christmas story will have no joy, if we don't see, first of all, that these verses, 
Okay, these, these verses, which are often called the, the curses, these verses are actually God being kind to us. They're God being kind to us. I remember the situation before. So, so, so just before God turns, turns up, what, what's the situation? The situation is that Adam and Eve and Satan are aligned. They're friends. They're in harmony with one another. Mankind and evil have clasped hands, shaken hands, formed a pact. They are going to live together. Together they're going to push God off the scene and they're going to go Satan's way. Adam and Eve, in other words, have bowed the knee to one who, although he smiles at them, actually wants their complete destruction. The other day, all our children were ill. So it was a sort of sit on the sofa and watch TV day. And we watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. First time I've watched it in years. In fact, I think it might be the first time I've ever watched the whole thing. And if you've seen that film, you know the, the bad, the, sort of the, the really evil character in there, the child catcher. If you've not seen the film, terrifying character. The child catcher. There's a kingdom called Vulgaria where the king and the queen hate children. So they have to have someone to round up the kids. And this character, the child catcher, well, how does he do it? He does it not by running around, sort of looking terrifying and jumping on children. He does it by dressing up as a, a sweet shop owner. Okay, he has a sort of caravan, he pulls around, and, and it looks wonderful. And he tempts the children out, lollies, sweets, candy floss. So the children come running to him, into the van, and then bang, he's caught them. That is what Satan does. He promises candy, but he wants our destruction. And before God turns up on the scene, Adam and Eve are... Well, they're there, in his snares. Uh, when God turns up and brings these curses, what he's doing is breaking that relationship, splitting up the friendship between man and Satan. Okay, pulling the handshake apart to make sure that humanity doesn't just head off on this path. In other words, there are two things we need to say about these curses. Yes, they're deserved, but they're also gracious. God is both punishing mankind, but also preventing us heading off into utter ruin. Pre- preventing us from plunging into the full extent of rebellion against him. You see it in each of the curses. Uh, look at the childbearing one again, verse 16. So childbearing, it will be painful, but we are still able to give birth. It's not that this earlier command, this picture of Adam and Eve in Eden, where they were told to be fruitful, to have kids. To... It's not that that's going to stop. It's now going to be harder, but it's not going to be impossible. The human race is not going to end. Think of Adam and his work. Yes, it's now going to be sweaty, it's going to be hard, but it's not impossible. He will still eat. Satan wanted their complete destruction, the ending of the human race. God intervenes, and even in these curses, even whilst he is punishing, he is also mysteriously blessing us. Now that, incidentally, is a pattern that's going to read right through to the cross of Jesus. At the very moment God punishes humanity, he's also blessing us. At the cross, that's in Christ. As Jesus hangs on the cross... As representative of his people, he is being punished, and at the same time, we're being blessed. Or to put it another way, as we die with Christ, we are being punished, but in Christ, whilst at the same time being blessed. 
So these curses are both punishment but also prevention. They're deserved but they're gracious. And one of the signs we understand that will be that we understand that everything that we have in life ultimately is a gift, not a right. Everything we have in life is a gift, not a right. I'm not talking really there about any sort of particular spiritual blessings, forgiveness, uh, mercy, eternal life, heaven. I mean, those are very obviously a gift. But actually, everything we have in life is a gift. By rights, we should just have the fruit of being people who, well, follow Satan, not Christ. Every blessing in family, every blessing from work, every blessing just of creation is a gift. And we, we ask that, we get this completely the wrong way around. We're constantly asking, God, why, why do you let this bad thing happen to me? Why do you let these tough things into my life, Lord? And we never ask the question, Lord, why are you being so kind to me? When was the last time... You sat down with a Christian friend and said, look, I just can't handle it. I do not understand why God is being nice to me. I, again, I can't do the math. 12, 14 years in ministry. No one has ever, ever, ever said, please, can I come around and talk? I just don't understand why God has been kind to me. Many, many times we sit down and ask, why does God allow these difficult things into my life? Now, I don't want to be... Dismissive of that question. That is a genuine question. If you're suffering, please don't hear me saying you're not allowed to ask why does God allow suffering. That is a question we need to wrestle with. But, but rather, I want us to see this morning from this passage that, that fundamentally, every good thing in our life is a gift, a blessing. And that had God just let us have what we deserve, we simply would be left in the sway of Satan and his kingdom. It leads, ultimately, if we understand Genesis 3, to gratitude, not grumbling. So that's the battleground, paradise lost. But secondly and finally, what about the promised victory? I just want to zoom in on one verse here, Genesis 3, verse 15. And here we need to understand God is speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. Let me read it again, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Heal. This is a promise both of a war, but also of a victory. First of all, of a war. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. You, Satan, and Eve, the woman, from now onwards, you are going to be at loggerheads. It's another example of God being kind to us. Stopping Eve and Satan being friends. But the, the battle is not just Eve against Satan. It's going down the generations. Between your offspring, your seed... And her offspring. Who are Satan's offspring? It's not like, it's not, there's not a Mrs. Satan. Okay? It's not like Satan has children, a nice little family. The offspring of Satan, as, as Jesus describes them, are not simply other spiritual beings who are evil, although that would be the case. But, but Jesus says anyone who allies with Satan rather than God are children of Satan. So he looks at the Pharisees who are opposing him in, in his day, in John's Gospel. And said, you're children of Satan because you're liars. And Satan was a liar from the beginning. John himself, in his letter, says anyone who, who murders, anyone who hates, is a child of Satan. Because they're following his project. There's going to be a fight, in other words, between those uh, who, who come and turn back to God and those who stay allied with Satan. And ultimately, it's going to resolve in this one-on-one -on -one combat. Do you see, it suddenly goes singular, that verse. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and then it zooms down. He, 
shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's, it's an ambiguous uh, phrase. It's difficult to translate because, uh, because the, the, the words, they, they could be singular or they could be plural. In other words, the, the word offspring there is a bit like our word sheep. If, I, if I'd point out the window and say, look, sheep in the field, you don't know if that's one sheep or two sheep because there's no word sheeps. Okay? Cows, cow, okay, pretty obvious. But, but, but the word sheep, it, it's the same whether there's one of them or lots of them. It's the same with this word offspring. It's deliberately ambiguous here. Uh, because, because God is both saying there's going to be a conflict down the generations, but also, also, that one of Eve's offspring, one human being, is going to go into ultimate conflict with Satan. And what's going to be the result? Well, it's going to be wounds on both sides. He, that's the human, shall bruise your head, Satan. Satan is going to have his head kicked in. It's a symbol of death. If you get your head crushed, bruised, you're, you're dead. But you, Satan, shall bruise this human's heel. So it is going to cost this human. But if you had a choice between your heel or your head being crushed, you're going to take your heel, aren't you? Okay. Having your heel crushed is not ultimately destruction. And so as the story of the Bible goes on, we see this conflict. We see a conflict, for example, between women and serpenty descendants. If you read the book of Judges, a number of times the kind of evil character, okay, that the wicked king, is defeated by a woman, often crushing the evil king's head. So there's, a, there's, a, there's one guy called Sisera, uh, who's a, an evil king. He's destroying the, the Israelites. He's beating them up. He eventually loses the battle. He flees, and he comes to rest in someone's tent. And what happens? The woman jail gets a tent peg and crushes his head. It's meant to just remind us of this little promise, Genesis 3, 15. A bit later, there's another king, Abimelech. And Abimelech, again, is the bad guy, and he comes to try and sort of take this tower. And we're told that he has his head crushed. And just gently we're told, it's a woman who threw the stone. Why bother telling us? Don't know who she is. It's just a little reminder that ultimately the seed of serpent will have their heads crushed one day. Uh, just come on with me to, to 1 Samuel 17, very famous story. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, uh, it's page 239 in the Church Bibles. 239. And it's the story of David and Goliath. Remember, David is God's king. He's a descendant of Eve, obviously, he's a human being. He's an ancestor of Jesus. And he goes head to head with Goliath, the ultimate bad guy. How is Goliath described? Well, we know he's tall, we know he's strong, we know he's a warrior. Look at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. Literally a coat of scales. It's one of those ones where it's slightly annoying. They've sort of tied it up and said it. Every other place that word is translated in the whole Bible, it is about serpent scales. Goliath is deliberately being described in serpenty terms. And what does David do? It's quite an story, isn't he? He pulls out his stones, flings them at David. Verse 49 over the page. What happens? This great serpenty bad guy is crushed in his head, in his forehead. 
his head is crushed uh, by Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. Amazing, what does David do? He stands over Goliath, he cuts off his head, and verse 54, he takes it to Jerusalem. Goliath's head, taken and buried in Jerusalem. Various times, servity, snake-like bad guys get their heads crushed throughout the story of the Old Testament. But ultimately, they're all just pictures. Uh, they're, they're setting up the final conflict, uh, which comes when Christ comes on the scene. He goes head-to-head with Jesus. Uh, we see this in all sorts of ways. We see him driving out demons. We see him reversing the kind of damage uh, that Satan brings, healing where Satan wants to wound. Uh, we see it in the temptations. Remember Jesus' temptations? They're very like Satan's uh, temptations of Eve, aren't they? What was Eve told? Take the fruit that you're not allowed. Take that food you're not allowed. What does Satan say to Jesus? Turn those stones to bread. Food you're not allowed. Take them. Bow down and worship me, Satan says to Jesus, just as he did uh, to Eve. No, 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 don't listen to God. Listen to me. Uh, Sorry for the paper chase, but just look at Psalm 91. Psalm 91, more or less in the middle of the Bible. Page 497, 497, Psalm 91. This is a text that Satan quotes to Jesus. Remember, he takes him up to the top uh, at the temple and says, throw yourself off and you won't hurt hurt yourself. What does he do? He quotes verse 11 to Jesus. Psalm 91, verse 11. For he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. says, look, God has promised you won't hurt yourself if you throw yourself off the building. The angels will catch you. He's trying to trick Jesus. What's amazing is the next verse. This is a promise to Jesus. Verse 13. The very next verse after Satan quotes, you, you great Messiah, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. I have no idea whether Satan just being cocky, I don't know, stupid, quoting a, a very psalm that says that actually the Messiah is going to crush Satan underfoot, crush the lion, another picture of Satan in the New Testament, this prowling lion. The promise is there, and Jesus fulfills it. He resists him all his life, but ultimately he conquers Satan in his death. Uh, the last passage we'll look at this morning, I promise. Come forward to the New Testament, to Hebrews and chapter 2. The book of Hebrews is after all the kind of Ian's lectures. It's 1002 in the church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2. I just want to read a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1002, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How has Satan got the power of death? It's not that he rightfully has the power of death. It's not as if he's God's sort of just executioner. Ultimately, it's God who punishes us, condemns us to death justly. 
But Satan knows that, and that is one of his great tools to use against us. He knows we are guilty. He knows we deserve death. So he can constantly terrify us by using our guilt to tell us that we deserve to die. So what does Jesus do? Do you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, I used a phrase that's been, been used in the church down the centuries to describe what Jesus does when he comes to earth, when the Son of God becomes man. The phrase is this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, fully God, doesn't give up any of his power, knowledge. He remains everything that he always was. He becomes what he was not. He becomes a man, a real man. See it there in verse 14? He partook of flesh and blood. What does Jesus gain by coming to earth that he didn't have before? What can Jesus do once he's incarnate in Mary's womb, once he's human, that he couldn't do before? Die. God can't die. In that sense, God alone couldn't save us. He needed to become man. He needed to become one of us. All he gains is death. As man, he is able to face death. And of course, he doesn't deserve it. He is the one man who, who can't come under Satan's curse. Who, Satan can't whisper in his ear, you, you are under the curse of God, therefore you should die. Rather, Christ doesn't come under Satan's power, come under the curse of death. He voluntarily lays down his life. It makes it just so clear in the Gospels. Satan has no authority over me, he says. Death has no power over me. I will lay down my life, and then I'll take it up again. And as he does so, he destroys the devil and delivers, verse 15, those enslaved through the fear of death. How? He destroys the devil because he takes the devil's tool away. The devil's tool of condemnation. Because Jesus goes to the cross innocent and yet bearing our guilt. It's like he takes with us the charge sheet. The sheet with everything we've done wrong on it. Every, every angry word. Every cold-hearted action towards God. Every doubt. Every act of rebellion in thought or word or in deed. Everything we've ever done, he takes with him to the cross and he bears the curse. He is punished for it. Uh, he dies instead of us. And therefore, and therefore, because all of that has been paid, Satan therefore no longer has a charge against us if, if we trust Christ. As death no longer needs to terrify us uh, because we no longer stand cursed. We may still die physically, but it's no longer a punishment, a curse. But it's simply a passage to eternal life. You see this pictured even in Jesus' death. What's he doing? He's dying. What's he wearing? He's wearing thorns, a crown of thorns. Remember the thorns from Genesis 3? A symbol of the curse. It may even be, and I, I can't 100% vouch for this, is a debated point. But where does Jesus die? Well, he dies on Golgotha. That's true. <laughs> the place of the skull. Several commentators think Golgotha is the place of gold skull. Goliath's skull. The skull buried in Jerusalem. Christ crucified above the place of the skull, the serpent's death, crushing his head underneath him. So certainly, certainly, 
He's reversed, he's crushed Satan rather, and therefore will reverse the curses. He will deliver us. He will restore paradise. And that's why we need to understand war before we understand the peace. Christ came to conquer. Christ came to remove everything that stands against us, enjoying again those paradise blessings. Christ came ultimately so that God could give us uh, not just, not just those Genesis 3 gifts of lives that aren't fully given to evil, lives that aren't just suffering, but ultimately so God could give us paradise. And all of it comes from Christ's hands rather than our own. It comes because someone fights for us, not because we fight. One of the worst Christmas songs ever written. Merry Christmas, war is over. The song is terrible, but the title's right. Merry Christmas, war is over. Let Christmas remind you that you have someone who has fought for you, that the, whatever curses and remnants of Satan's rebellion you still experience in your work life, in your family life, uh, from the environment, whether even eventually you face death if Christ doesn't come back first. None of those things anymore are able to separate you from eternal life and glory. None of them can win because Christ has conquered entirely. Merry Christmas. War is over.